From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy's top acquisition leader says the force will need more spending waivers in future continuing resolutions the longer those CRs might run. James Hondo Gertz says the most important waiver so far is for the Columbia-class submarine program in the new CR. USNI News reports the Navy's ready to award the contract early in the new fiscal year, but it will need that waiver when the CR is in effect. The Army will host an industry day for vehicle electrification initiatives October 20th. The Forces Maneuver Capabilities Development and Integration Directorates working on a requirements document for the initiative. Defense News reports cutting fossil fuel dependence and increasing operational reach are two of the benefits the Army cites from the initiative. The leader of the Navy's oldest and largest industrial facility is out tonight. A loss of confidence in the leadership of Captain Kai Torkelson at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard caused the Navy to relieve him. Military.com reports performance issues on ship maintenance schedules caused the loss of confidence in Torkelson. The Army has changed its mind about submitting its own bid on the replacement it's buying for the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle. It's tried a couple of different approaches to getting a new solution to warfighters. General Carter Hamm, U.S. Army retired as president and CEO of the Association of the U.S. Army. Carter, it's good to see you again. Before we talk about the Bradley, your big event every year is going virtual this year. I'm disappointed that I won't see it at the convention center next month, but what will AUSA look like this year? Well, thanks, Francis. It's good to see you as well, though virtually. Um, yes, we, uh, the COVID-19 has changed all of our lives in lots of different ways. And one of the ways it has affected us here at the Association of the United States Army is that we, we aren't able to gather at the convention center as we have in past years, where last year more than 33,000 people came. So this year we're doing AUSA Now, a virtual platform beginning on October 13th, continuing through October 16th. We'll still have many of the same programs. Secretary of Defense will speak. The Secretary of the Army will speak. The Chief of Staff, of course, the Sergeant Major of the Army, and many other uh, uh, panels on professional subjects. So the format will seem very familiar to people who have attended before. We'll still have an ex exhibit hall. It will be virtual uh, rather than in person, but we're very confident uh, that that will work out uh, work out quite well. What I'm excited about, Francis, is that, well, I'm disappointed about the in-person aspects that we will miss this year. This affords us an opportunity to extend the Army, extend AUSA to people and communities who otherwise would not participate in the AUSA annual meeting. So it's pretty exciting. And that's the piece of this, General, that I think is the most interesting, is the potential for those elements to continue, let's say AUSA goes completely back to normal in its in-person elements in 2021, I imagine there are pieces of this that we can expect to continue for your event and other events uh, all across the spectrum. There's no question about that, Francis. We've learned a lot uh, over these last six plus months of operating virtually and the ability, again, to extend our programming more widely so yes, even when we do go back to in-person events, we're gonna capitalize on what we have learned in the virtual space 
and combine the best of in-person and virtual events, which we think will best support the Army and best support our members and industry partners as we move forward. Um, to go back to what I teased folks with at the beginning of our conversation, Carter, uh, the Army is deciding it's not going to uh, submit its own bid on the Bradley. What does this mean to you, and what does this say more broadly about the, the needs of the military, particularly the Army, saying this is what we want, we want to be able to do this thing versus citing requirements where there's a long list of things that a particular piece of hardware has to do? Well, as you and all who follow this business are, are keenly aware, uh, the Bradley replacement process uh, has, has been uh, somewhat problematic for the Army. And so as they were looking for options and, and you know, how do, we, how do we get what we need for the future, one of the considerations was for the Army essentially to do the, the design in-house. After some thought and consideration and deliberation, uh, they decided against that course of action. For me personally, I think that's the right course of action. General Mike Murray at Army Futures Command and, and other senior Army leaders have, have spoken frequently over the past couple of years and recognize that, that real innovation, real change resides in the great defense industrial base uh, of the nation and, and including non-traditional uh, defense business as well. That's where innovation is really going to come with. So I think this was a wise decision on the part of the Army uh, to seek industries, to seek partnering with industry, again, perhaps non-traditional industries, to find the best solution for this very important component of building Army capability for the future. What level do you see and would you like to see those decisions being made at the chief level, at the uh, PEO level, where in the chain is it appropriate for somebody to decide we should be involved, we should make a bid, we should let industry do this? Well, I think it depends largely on the nature of the program, the scale, the scope. I mean, how impactful is this? How key is this to building future capabilities? What's the cost, frankly? You know, does where's the dollar threshold? And I think that will lead to a decision as to where the appropriate authority is. You know, not everything can or should go to the chief of staff and the secretary of the Army. You know, they, like like everyone else, you know, they have limited uh, time, energy, and, and uh, uh, bandwidth. And so we want those most senior leaders focusing on the most impactful decisions. Um, I think this is, to me, this is the beauty of Army Futures Command. Uh, that you now have a four-star commander kind of charged with holistically looking at the future requirements of the Army and in collaboration with the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition Logistics and Technology, working very closely with the program executive officers and, and others. I think there's a, a process to make the right decision on what level of the Army should appropriate decisions be made. General, I will look forward to seeing you virtually next month for AUSA this year. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. I look forward to seeing you in person when we can do that again, as we all hope to, will be very soon. Up next, the future of conflict in space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, modernizing technology and how the Defense Secretary plans to approach conflict with near-peer competitors. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Defense Secretary Mark Esper says this week the Air Force and Space Force are, quote, fundamentally changing the character of war through new technologies. Esper calls air, space, and cyber warriors at the forefront of the future fight. Caitlin Johnson's associate director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, welcome back. Is this a stake in the ground? Is this a new direction in the way that the U.S. military or the Trump administration is talking about space? Or is this a continuation, an evolution of the narrative that you've been seeing? I think it's that second point. It's an evolution of the narrative that we've already been seeing. A lot of this narrative, of course, was you know, prime focus when the Space Force was created, which was over a year ago or about a, a half a year ago. What is time in the pandemic? Um, but Esper's remarks at the Airspace and Cyber Conference, especially about warfare in space, was a lot of what we've already been hearing and that he's accusing Russia and China of weaponizing space through killer satellites and directed energy weapons, which is not untrue, but uh, it does ignore that we have our own arsenal of both offensive and defensive space weapons as well. It strikes me that what is maybe not new but louder is the call that Secretary Esper is making and others are making in the department and outside the department. Um, this is a quote. We cannot take for granted the United States' long-held advantages. That's similar language to the third offset, but I think when Bob Work suggested the third offset in the Obama administration, there was a sense that we still had a fairly wide margin ahead of China and Russia, and we needed to maintain that. It sounds like Secretary Esper is suggesting that, that that margin is eroding. Am I maybe too much of an alarmist? Well, I can't speak to other domains, but in space, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think Russia and China have incredible capabilities in space, but at the same time, so do we, and even more so. Um, what is maybe alarming is Russia and China are becoming more bold in their testing of capabilities. Um, China just launched um, an, a space plane, very much like our own X-37. Um, and Russia te is testing on-orbit capabilities that's making uh, people inside the department and around the globe uh, a little worried. What is it that we should be able to do to maintain that margin, to try to, and maybe even try to expand it? So this is the key question that our General Raymond, uh, who's the commander of the Space Force, is facing right now. Um, what to do and to keep that that margin. And you can hear a lot of this in their rhetoric and in General Roman's speeches as well. Um, but it's building more resilient satellite architectures that are designed to withstand attacks, um, such as jamming or cyber attacks, um, maybe building more distributed architectures so that our capabilities are spread amongst tens or hundreds of satellites instead of a few very high valued and very valuable targets for our adversaries. Um, but General Raymond did say in, in his speech at the conference as well is that if a CR, if a budget is not passed, a CR would hurt the Space Force. Um, and maybe we are our own worst enemy in this fight. What does the, the reliance right now, the interaction with the commercial space providers mean for somebody like General Raymond who's trying to sort this out. One of the advantages it strikes me that China and Russia have is they can do whatever they want whenever they want, and uh, they can do it under government auspices. 
we don't want that capability, but we also don't have that capability. And so there's that interaction that uh, obviously NASA and, and the services are becoming more reliant, not less reliant on commercial space. I think that's true. Um, but commercial space gives us an incredible advantage. There is innovation that is ongoing in American um, new space companies and our traditional defense stalwarts. That is just not happening in China or Russia. And this is because of the way that our system is set up and the way that the government can feed in money to promote research and development in these countries and, and capitalize on you know, just the brain power and the innovation that, um, that new space has. One of the things that Secretary Esper talked about was the joint warfighting concept. And the joint idea is something that every branch is talking about. Um, and, and, and how it will apply in space. What's your sense of how the execution of that is actually going, what the execution actually looks like right now, Caitlin? Sure, so I think this is one of the biggest challenges for the Space Force is, is getting this part of the joint warfighting concept right. Space is both uh, an enabler of all other domains and is also able to act independently. And that makes it critical for any joint warfighting construct. And the Space Force is definitely um, allowing policymakers and military professionals to rethink how this construct uh, should be better conducted and better integrate space into the other services. We have less than a minute left, Caitlin. What's the tie-in between the concepts that we've discussed and the Space Force's capstone doctrine, the, the first piece of paper, basically, that says this is how we're going to do business. I think all of these uh, issues that we've covered today and that are in the space power uh, doctrine are not new issues. For the space community, these are issues we've been talking about forever. It's just that it's now being a little louder and when Esper comes out and Raymond come out and talk about these issues, it catches the ear of policymakers on the Hill and in the administration who have, you know, wide influence to to help the Space Force and help DOD make these changes. Caitlin Johnson, great to have you back. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Up next, the CARES Act's lasting impact on defense acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the pandemic response could change defense contracting for good. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Senate's Coronavirus Relief Bill, the HEALS Act, could add $8 billion to Defense Production Act money. It's one of the ways the pandemic response impacts the way the Pentagon approaches acquisitions now and how it could impact procurement in the future. Jerry McGinn's executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former principal deputy director of the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy and writing about this issue in the national interest. Jerry, thanks for coming on the program. As always, one of the things that you cite in this piece that I think is interesting is that, uh, that overall, it, it seems you believe that so far, the government contracting community has done well under the, the what Congress has done for it. Why do you think that's the case? Yes, uh, great to see you, Francis. Great to be back. And uh, yeah, the, this has been a, pretty much a, a, a ultimate stress test or close to ultimate stress test for the government contracting community 
akin to a world war essentially because we're all impacted and uh, the system has actually responded quite well and congress has facilitated that greatly so in two ways one is the way in which uh, the community operates both government and industry you've seen the dramatic shift to telework and how government has facilitated that through deviations changes to contracts and the like and how companies have continued to perform and perform well there have been some delays um, and which is not, which is understandable, but in general, the system has um, continued to operate well. And then also in the response, the federal response. I mean, it was chaotic in the beginning, but you saw a kitchen sink approach where you know they did all kinds of uh, contracting means to to essentially throw money at the, the virus through um, you know through OTs uh, through uh, you know rapid turn one day response RFQs RFPs. And in general, the, 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 that's led to a tremendous, I mean, um, tens of billions of dollars uh, in federal response that has really helped prevent any significant um, uh, shortages of, um, of equipment for this time. You write in this piece, this emphasis on OTs and other acquisition initiatives has created an environment where companies of all sizes and types are working with the government. That's been a stated goal of the department for years before you were even there. Is it too early to declare victory or maybe this is just victory in a battle versus victory in the war that's a great question francis and and that, that's sort of the the question i have going forward is is how much of this is going to stick you know, how much will this be sticky and my my uh my hope and my my belief is that a lot will stick uh, a lot of these tools that have been um uh, congress has given um, to the department, to the U.S. government more broadly, uh, as well as the government approaches to, it, to industry and to contracting, I think a lot of it will stick. And I, you've seen that in um, remarks by L, uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Ellen Lord, and others saying that we need to, uh, there's no going back, essentially. And in the, in the area of OTs, you've seen, you've seen the, the CARES Act re, uh, removed some of the restrictions on reporting um, above $500 million projects. Um, so you've seen OTs do a lot of different things across the response um, for, for COVID. Uh, initially, HHS did a, a number of OTs on vaccine development and, uh, you know, over $100 million. But most of the um, OT ones have been smaller. Um, and, uh, you know, so it remains to be seen how much they'll use this going forward. You write in this piece, Jerry, let's build on the coronavirus response to further defense acquisition reform. Does that mean that you want to see different stuff than we're doing now? Or do you want to see an acceleration of the things that we've talked about and that you write about in this piece or some mm -hmm. combination of both? I think a little bit of both. What I think we need to do is really take a hard look at the things we've done in the CARES Act and in uh, to respond to this and see what really has worked well and what uh, we need to uh, instantiate more into the system uh, and what, you know, is maybe not kind of uh, the best approach going forward. So I think uh, we definitely need to um, uh, maintain as much of this as possible because what, what is, it has enabled is a really a, a whole of government, a whole of industry kind of um, response to these these pressing problems and we need more of that in the future. Is there a risk that by changing too many things too fast, we're not really able to well assess what's working and what's not working, whether something, some good outcome that we got was a direct result of this reform or that reform? Yeah, that, 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 again, that is sort of the crux of the matter. And I think um, what we need now is some clear-eyed kind of analysis on things that worked well and what needs to continue from the CARES Act. And, you know, maybe things need to be tweaked. But um, And the biggest thing I need to do when I write in this piece 
is that you know, the DOD in particular has done a number of things. They've set up this agile acquisition framework. Uh, they, uh, Congress had given previous middle tier acquisition authority. These are natural tools that now we should start see, applying these reforms to the, to the things that they're already in place. Like the acquisition framework, it enables DOD, it says it, but there's lots of different pathways to choose for acquisition, choose the right one. So we need to get the contracting officers uh, and all the leadership on the same page so that um, the, the right acquisition approach is used for the, for the correct problem, um, the correct uh, acquisition um, uh, situation. Less than 30 seconds, Jerry. Uh, who should be doing that clear-eyed analysis that you're calling for? Well, there's, uh, there's, you know, there's a number of uh, good organizations to do that. Uh, universities, of course, uh, as well as uh, federal funded research and development centers, uh, working closely with um, the Department of Defense and other government agencies. And we're going to be talking about these issues at our second annual government contracting conference with DAU on October 6th. Um, so we'd love to, uh, to have you and your viewers join us there. Jerry McGinn, thanks very much. Great to see you. Great to see you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, this year's virtual AUSA conference includes four days of breaking Army news, seminars, and interactive virtual exhibits. You'll hear from key leaders, including Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Sergeant Major, and a lot more. It happens October 13th through 16th, and you can find out more at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.